0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Today, I'm talking to Jonathan Morris about the history of coffee. Not frisky Yemeni goats or the importance of the coffee house in the development of the stock exchange or insurance markets, more the development of Italian coffee culture in the 20th century and how it spread to England and adapted as it went. Jonathan is Professor of History at the University of Hertfordshire in England, and his book, Coffee, A Global History, came out a little more than a year ago. I'll have more on the book and how you can get it at a discount at the end of the show. But first, let's start with the origins of the modern coffee culture in Italy. How does that get going?
1: Well, I think what really Happens in in sort of 1901, we can arguably trace it back a little bit before. Is that we have to think about the the problems, as it were, facing caterers. That their problem ultimately is once you start having uh, a trade in which you're serving large numbers of people coffee, how do you manage to do that at speed? Because coffee takes quite a long time to extract. So your options are either to extract the coffee beforehand. So to make a big kind of batch of filter coffee or whatever and to effectively make it into huge urns, and that actually is what tends to be done in um, markets like the US and the UK, or you can try and speed up that extracting process. And to speed that process up, uh, the way to speed up extraction is pressure. It's really the combination of this guy, Luigi Bezzera, who is an engineer, And he comes up with, as it were, the technical thoughts about how this could be achieved by using steam to drive water down through the coffee bed. And he starts patenting this. So his first patent is in 1901. And eventually his patents are seen by a very different kind of man, Desiderio Pavoni. Now Pavoni is much more... A kind of serial entrepreneur, he's um, he's in many ways the kind of the ultimate marketing consultant. He's into theatre, he's into cinemas, he's much more the kind of person who understands public. Hmm. And so Pavoni finances Betsler and buys from Betsler some of his patents, and they together produce this first machine, uh, which is known as the the Pavoni Ideali, and display that at the World's Coffee Fair, not the World's Coffee Fair, the World Fair, rather, uh, in Milan in 1906.
0: Presumably, kind of chemists and so on had come up with this idea that faster, that pressure would give you better extraction of whatever it was in coffee that was good. But would, would we recognise the product of, of one of those early espresso machines? Would we recognise that as an espresso?
1: No. Absolutely not. If you were given one of those kinds of coffees today, I think what you would think is that this is a slightly more concentrated than usual filter coffee. It would have no crema on the top because the pressure is still very low. So the pressures we're talking about here are sort of one or two bars. So really very much, you know, not very much above normal pressure. Mm -hmm. result is that the coffee is more concentrated it certainly would taste more concentrated than a pure filter it didn't really have that very concentrated body that we would now expect it tended because of the way the machines are so you're um, technically when we think about the coffee so we're putting the coffee into that filter holder um with the Hot water and then, particularly, the steam which is used to chase the coffee down to create that pressure. The steam going through the coffee frequently burns the coffee. So, the beverage was pretty burnt, right. pretty black, pretty charred in that sense. So, it, again, that's not really what we would expect an espresso to look like. But the absolute key to that is the crema. There's no crema on top of espresso until after. The second world war until really 1948 with uh, the first gadget machines
0: okay well hold that hold that for a minute because do, yeah. <laughs> in general the the fascists and mussolini are not keen on foreign stuff and while we may think of coffee as quintessentially italian of course it doesn't grow in italy it's all imported even if some of it's coming from italian colonies um how did they respond to the to the growing interest in coffee?
1: There's sort of two phases of this and, and, and it's important to think about it. So the period around the First World War, so that during the First World War, the Italian army actually supplied coffee to the troops. And I mean, it wasn't alone in doing that. Quite a few armies realized that coffee's psychoactive components Uh, And the fact that it could be sort of made relatively quickly and hot, that these were things that they, you know, it was a way of delivering energy to the troops and a way of delivering comfort to them. So that actually helped build the sort of the desire for coffee, as it were, in in, in Italy. But really, the fascist view on coffee was, yes, you say coffee doesn't grow in Italy. It's a luxury good. Consuming coffee doesn't really give you any calories, so it's not a vital uh, good in any way. So everything that's devoted to coffee is actually, in some sense, is a kind of a waste of resource. You know, wasting money by importing, wasting resource because it's not actually giving you anything. So although during the 20s the consumption of coffee in Italy increased somewhat as a result of what happened, during the war and the the sort of the army provisioning. In the 30s, it gradually declines. And as early as the uh, mid-20s, in fact, the fascists were taxing uh, espresso machines. So those early espresso machines uh, in 1926, as a result of a kind of financial crisis, uh, some legislation was brought in which said that, you know, you would not be allowed to install espresso machines into any localities, other than very specifically tourist hotels. And tourist hotels, because then in effect the amount of income generated by tourism would offset the amount wasted by uh,
0: importing coffee. (laughs) But is that also a recognition that tourists expect coffee in Italy, or is it not really part of that?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, Italy in one sense obviously had a long standing reputation for coffee on the basis that it was really the first country in Europe in which coffee appeared. But it has to be said that when we look at the actual consumption figures, in that period, consumption in Italy, really in the 20s, was actually probably per head less than it was in Britain. Mm -hmm. And as we know, Britain was not a coffee-drinking country. I think there was some sense of coffee... Uh, becoming a part of that Italian imagery quite quickly.
0: Fast forward to, to, to this post-Second War um, and, yeah. and the true espresso. How does that come about?
1: Well, that's a, a guy called Achille Gadget in Milan. Uh, Gadger is the first guy to really think this through and bring it to production. Now, there's a great great dispute, you know, Gadger is supposed to have bought some patents from the uh, widow of an engineer who uh, sort of, you know, had been working on this problem in the 30s. The engineer died, he gave the patents to his widow, etc. But in a sense, that's a kind of a building up of the technical knowledge is there. But it's Gadger in 48 who brings this about. And his great innovation is that he uses a spring-loaded piston to propel the water through the coffee and that means that he no longer has to use steam direct uh, from the boiler in order to flush that coffee through for the pressure and that means his coffee is not burned number one but number two that the using the coil um, enables you obviously to rack up the pressure so The pressure will will go from about sort of three up at one point to 12 atmospheres. Essentially, what this means is that you get for the first time this crema, this sort of emulsion of uh, oils that appears on the top of the coffee. And um, in fact, they therefore don't call this espresso because espresso is a term that's being used from the 19 sort you know the 1918s 1920s instead what they call this is oh, we have a new beverage and it's called uh, crema cafe and the idea therefore that the the espresso is topped with crema and that this makes a whole new beverage and so through the 50s 60s most of the time that we see advertising for machines or for coffee bars they will talk about you know we are serving the new crema cafe
0: and and because it requires this big industrial machine it's unlike anything you could prepare at home so the coffee you you drink away from home now becomes something rather special
1: exactly so that, that kind of lays this sort of separation between what am I going to get in the coffee bar and what am I going to get at home? And that's quite important because the other thing that sort of happens in this time is obviously the development of that so-called mocha pot or the stove pot. Oh, which those, is, those
0: in- uh, aluminium things? that
1: The aluminium things, the great sort of Bialetti, uh, Bialetti invention. So those are invented in the 30s. And again, the aluminium uh, is quite significant because that's a, sort of, that, that's a fascist-approved metal um but um the again the the real takeoff for these is in the, the the late 50s 60s and they're marketed as producing the same coffee that you get in a bar well they don't you will you'll, you'll use the i'm sure you've used one yourself Jeremy, and yeah. you'll know that you know you don't get crema on the top of your your morning mocha no. but what you are tasting And this is actually very significant, is something not that different to what those huge previous set of machines were making in the interwar era. Mm. Because the little mocha pot does generate enough pressure to push the water up through the coffee. So in a way, this move was actually very important because otherwise you would have been able to drink the same kind of coffee at home as in the bar. Instead of which now you have this whole differentiation.
0: Ah, right. So the bar has kind of leapt ahead.
1: Exactly, the bar has leapt ahead. The bar becomes a separate sphere for coffee, and that kind of meets quite well what happens in Italy as a whole. Because um, right up until the fifties, is really an agrarian economy. You know, the majority of the people live and work on the land. Hmm. Uh, it's only really in the in the fifties that That begins to change Uh, in the post-war era. Many people move into the cities and along with moving into the cities and the kind of the, uh, you know, we all have to develop a new kind of urban lifestyle. Most of those people are living in, in very small accommodation. There are not many spaces in which to socialize. The bar provides that space. Now, at night, obviously, that might well be an alcohol space, but during the day, the bar becomes the centre of neighbourhood life, and that's a coffee space. And to that, you add, therefore, the attraction of let's go to the bar, we have a coffee, it's a different kind of coffee. And at the same time, if you want to think about it in terms of the workplace, well, you know, the workplace cafeteria, if such a thing were there would not be able to generally afford to invest in that kind of coffee-making machinery. So again, the habit of popping out of the workplace to have your coffee and then go back to the workplace becomes fairly uh, well-established. So all of these things really come together, I think, to sort of help create you know, that, that fairly distinctive Italian coffee culture. It's very much a product of this time that it becomes the everyday Italian experience.
0: And and yet, I mean, this, this idea of a of a coffee space for socialising as a kind of third place, equivalent maybe to the kind of English pub, Um, that's very much at odds with the modern Italian coffee bar where you stand at the counter and you grab a quick coffee and off you go again.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that there there are several things that govern that. One is actually that that space is a space for popping in and popping out, and you might do that several times a day. It's a kind of a neighbourhood meeting space, but not a neighbourhood, Jeremy, let's go and have a long talk about our next project space, or let's catch up what we think of AS Roma or whatever. It's a space for, hey, we'll walk down, I'm gonna, I pop in my coffee, maybe you're there, I say, hi, Jeremy, how are you? Let's have a cigarette, perhaps, while we have our coffee. Now I'm off to work. But then I might meet you again. Four hours later, yeah? Oh, I've just had my lunch. I've popped down to coffee. There you go, blah, blah. The notion of that space is, is very much more one of, I think, frequency rather than length of time. If there's socialization of a long longer time, it would have usually been in the evening. And that's more around the aperitif or it's more around and there's a very specific period. Again, really early 60s uh, is the time when bars are the place... To watch television so the other thing to say about this is really about the service style because that's very again very distinct i think to to people coming from elsewhere to italy and this thing of you know you stand up you eat you drink your coffee standing up you drink it you go yeah now the standing up bit goes back to some legislation that comes in in 1911 and it's really legislation that is supposed to allow councils local commune, in an emergency to impose price restrictions uh price caps if you like on what are considered everyday items of consumption now there it's quite odd that coffee was one of those but it was and i suspect this is because um Already the, um, if you like, the government offices around Rome, uh, you'd find a lot of people taking coffee. Anyway, they, the, what they decided constituted a coffee whose price could be capped was a coffee with no service. One cup of coffee, no service. It's, it, it's how it's defined. So the no service means not served at table, not with any kind of uh, ambiance. Not with anything that would make you think in a third place. All of that's out of it. If you do happen to sit down at a table and get served, you may well pay an awful lot more for your coffee. You
0: certainly will. I yeah. think we've all been caught out of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, okay, so let's let's then m- move on to the the way this sort of Italian, this new Italian coffee culture takes wing and 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 moves out i mean i'm i'm old enough to remember being very excited in england to see the movie espresso bongo um but but looking back that was nothing like an an italian coffee bar
1: that's great that you've seen espresso bongo um way that that really happened is that those early gadget machines those piston machines i mean they are very very theatrical And the sort of intuition of some entrepreneurs was, you know, you can use these to make a point of difference and to then build a business around that. Now, the business that they built was much more around entertainment. And it was really, I think, based on the idea that the the sort of youth entertainment, the pub at that time was very much a sort of traditional British pub, very kind of boring to, to young people. So combining an offer coffee that didn't require people to be a certain age for drinking, that had a hint of the exotic about it, and that could be combined with maybe creating an atmosphere with jukeboxes. With, with dancing, with the sort of things that could have surrounded that youth culture, created a sort of a separate space. Coffee had not actually come off ration in the UK until 1952. So coffee was relatively rare. And as we know, it's not really Britain's beverage. It's not a traditional British beverage in a way. Tea had completely overtaken coffee within British consumption. So it was quite a distinctive icon, as it were, a way of of denoting difference, that you would be having a coffee in the coffee bar, you were dancing to the jukebox, you were doing something different, very different from what previous generations had done.
0: Very rebellious.
1: Very rebellious, exactly. And indeed, you know, that's the whole notion of the teenager, isn't it? The late 50s, the the first notion of the teenager as a generational separate category and a separate consumer category, a separate cultural category, and the coffee bar fits right in with that.
0: But they're not really drinking espresso, are they?
1: No, they're not. Um, if they're drinking anything, they're drinking cappuccino, or what they believe to be cappuccino, because certainly the, the steaming of the milk is part of that theatre. Uh, and it also makes for a beverage that's slightly longer because, again, you know, if you're going to go up to the West End to go to a coffee bar, then drinking an espresso, which lasts you five seconds, is really not um, not going to do it. So one thing that, that we know is that they would make these cappuccinos, they would make them incredibly hot. Uh, and part of the value of them being hot was that actually it meant that it took longer to drink them. And it takes longer because there's a slightly bigger volume, although you know, the volume is nothing to what uh, some places serve today. The, there's a classic photo, which is of um, a guy in the Mocca Bar, which was the first bar in the West End to serve Italian-style coffee. He's, there's a woman handing him his cappuccino, and he's got up a shaving mirror and is having a shave. And the story is that this is an Italian guy. He went into the mocha bar. He said, you know, I, I took a cappuccino or whatever. And by the time he said, you know, by the time this has cooled down, I could have had a shave. So they saw the opportunity for a photo op and set it up and then distributed that. But it captures a deeper thing, which is that, you know, there is a reason why Brits wanted their coffee hot. And that was to you know, that cooling down time created more time in which to sit, to chat, to create, generate a conversation. So that was one of the reasons why, if you like, these drinks were more popular than espresso itself. The espresso itself doesn't really translate.
0: And the espresso as a basis for something to drink was more important than the espresso itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, there were no there's no sense of there having been espresso connoisseurs or a shift to espresso drinking. In a way, the cappuccino was how do we capture the the standards, you know, white coffee market, but nonetheless make it look exotic.
0: But it's interesting also because after the Second World War, lots and lots of Italians who were either prisoners of war or or emigrants, or from Italy into into the UK, opened CAFs, um, you know, working-class working, working class yep. cafes. And they weren't serving Italian-style coffee.
1: No, absolutely not, because they recognised that their audience, if you like, their consumers, that wasn't really something that they would be be going for. So many of those CAFs, I mean, they major on tea, basically, because that is very easy. If they do... Uh, a coffee do anything close to an italian coffee it's what they call uh it, it is the classic frothy coffee <laughs> well they'll use a fairly normal sort of filtered coffee base and put on top of it froth milk yeah so it's a very weak tasting it's not really a cappuccino but it tastes like it tastes like literally um you know a very very weak coffee with with froth milk on
0: it to come full circle though um, and this idea of coffee being Italian, even though what you're doing with it is un-Italian, um, yeah. there's this whole knotty question of, of authenticity. Um, it, in England, I think, the, I think I'm right in saying that the biggest coffee chain is Caffe Nero, um, black coffee, if you like. Um, is there anything Italian about Caffe Nero? first
1: of all we should just say actually it's the third biggest chain Thank you. Uh, I, but in fact there's quite an interesting thing to, to talk about here because the biggest chain is not Starbucks but the biggest chain is, is one called Costa Coffee now Costa Coffee was founded by two Italian English I'm trying to think of the correct way of putting it but basically two Italians who'd come to, to England but had been here for Uh, a long time and originally was founded back in the 70s supplying Italian trattorias etc with coffee and usually as filter coffee so there were two Costa brothers and Costa for many years marketed itself as uh, Italian about coffee or it was Italian it was authentic Um, nearly all of that was subsequent to those two guys having sold the business and sold it to Whitbread, which was this huge uh, conglomerate, which was actually primarily at that point a brewing company. You know, their Italianness ness was based on them having been Italian. The Caffinero that you referred to, uh, actually, they're even less Italian. So their kind of owner and, and CEO is, is an American. And most of the people, they're not um, Italian extraction and their coffee again is is kind of locally roasted so you can argue that you know this authenticity is is very little in these. You can take that a little step further and I think it's you know it's only fair to do so and say that what those places do do is some things that are quite Italian so they use both Costa and Nero, use overwhelmingly what we call traditional espresso machines, machines made in Italy where you actually have to do the whole thing with the group head and so forth. Now, you may remember that at Starbucks, they switched some time ago to Swiss machines, uh, which are super automatic, which basically bean to cut. So uh, your coffee in Starbucks can be prepared by a barista simply hitting a button, whereas those in Costa and Nero are prepared by baristas who have to be trained how to use the machines, there's a whole set of discussions about, well, what shoots an espresso blend that tastes like an Italian espresso blend? And again, um in particular would say, well, you know, all of their coffee is uh, roasted and blended in a very traditional Italian style, a quite dark style. Uh, Costa would also maintain that. They have a slightly lighter style, but it's still uh, very much in the Italian tradition. So, I think these arguments become very difficult. I think that in terms of the authenticity, what they were trying to offer was was you know authenticity is in the um, it's in the the feelings of the receiver, isn't it? So there was a sense that Café Nero, for example, was very authentic because it felt the closest to an Italian coffee bar. Maybe everybody wasn't standing up, but your coffee tasted very Italian. There's an issue about what constitutes or doesn't constitute authenticity. Is authenticity having an Italian owner, or is authenticity using the machines and doing the beverages closer to the Italian original style? Jonathan Morris.
0: And if you know anything about me, you know that I think of authenticity as one of the great fake notions of our time. In any case, Jonathan, as I said, is kindly offering Eat This Podcast listeners a discount on his book. Go to the Reaction Books website. I'll put a link in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com and enter the code COFFEE20. That's COFFEE20 at the checkout. The book will let you discover some of the other fascinating aspects of coffee that we talked about and that I didn't have time for in the show. One other thing, the film I mentioned, Espresso Bongo, is a gem, if you can find it. It marked Richard's film debut, and it's a wonderful account of the rise of the teenager, and pop music, and maybe even the birth pangs of swinging London. And digging around to confirm my memories, I discovered that the British Film Institute issued a remastered version in its Flipside series. Again, I'll put a link to that and a history of the Two Eyes coffee bar where the action was in the show notes. But that's it for this episode. Thanks again to Jonathan Morris and to the listeners who support the show with a donation. You can do that, too, from the website at eatthispodcast.com. For now, though, from me and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.